Hello, and welcome back to the Immigration Guy. Happy freaking Wednesday. Today, we are going to talk about H2B visas, and I'm going to talk about it as fast as humanly possible so we can get to the fun part, which is all the randomness that always happens at the end of the podcast. So, uh, we are getting into H... Oh, son of my freaking weekend. I uh, was... I had a bunch of sick kids all weekend. So me and my wife left the house and left them there because we don't want to get sick. That's what good parents do. Uh, and and then we went and hung out at uh, Barton Creek here in Austin, which was a ton of fun. That place was sweet. And then we got home and they were still sick, so we still didn't avoid it. Uh, but that's okay. We were we were a little bit sick last week, uh, so nothing fun there. And I haven't even gone hunting yet, and we're halfway through October, and it's bow season here in Texas. And so uh, I do expect to do that at some point this week, certainly. But as for this last weekend, didn't do much. I don't even think I golfed or shot a gun, so I don't know what I'm doing with my life if I can't even manage to do those things. Hey y'all, this is The Immigration Guy with Kyle Farmer. All right, let's talk about H2B, specifically about the H2B process. Uh, And then this is something that we probably talked about before. We want to hit it again because we are getting into heavy H2B season. Uh, So I'm going to initially talk about the process and then obviously the numerical cap, which is horrible. I'm going to go through what happens there. So, okay. So the, the timeline, you, you want to file your H2B applications. The first thing that you file is a prevailing wage determination. Now the government used to only take about 30 days to issue prevailing wage determinations. Right now they're taking anywhere between 45 and 60. So if you don't have your prevailing wage determination filed now, I would hurry up because otherwise it's going to be tough to file your application on time. And I'm going to be talking specifically about applications with a start date of April 1st. And the reason I'm talking about applications with the start date of April 1st is because the government has a numerical cap uh, and the numerical caps broken out based off the fiscal year. The second half of the fiscal year starts on April 1st. So that's basically where everyone's applying right now. So the first thing, file your prevailing wage determination. That'll take about 45 days to get back, 60 days to get back. Uh, And then between January 1st and January 3rd, you're filing a few documents. You're filing with the state workforce agency a job order. And the job order is meant to advertise your open positions to the U.S. workforce because the H-2B program has a requirement that employers do not adversely affect the U.S. workforce. And so uh, this is how the employer demonstrates that they do that. They file the job order of the state workforce agency. At the same time, you'll want to file a form with the Department of Labor called a 9142B. Uh, And then the 9142B has a bunch of substantiating evidence that you want to include in there uh, to demonstrate that your application fits within the regulatory framework. So that all happened between January 1st and January 3rd. So happy new year. Get your butt to work on H2B. Uh, And then about a week later, you'll get assigned a group. Last year, the groups were A through G. If you don't get assigned group A, 
your applicant, you're probably not going to get workers under the cap. Uh, it's just too competitive. Last year, they assigned 35,000 beneficiaries under the A category, which only has 33,000 available spots. So if you're not under Group A, you might as well just rely on the cap increase, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh, but if you are, the, the next two things, one of the these two things will happen next. You'll either get what's called a notice of deficiency, and a notice of deficiency is where the Department of Labor is just seeking more information on your application to ensure that it's properly filed and meets within the regulatory framework. Uh, or you'll get a notice of acceptance. The notice of acceptance starts a recruitment period uh, where you'll post a job uh, for 15 consecutive business days with like a print off of a posting or you'll put it on your website. Uh, and then after that, you'll end up getting certification from the Department of Labor. And then you file this form, it's called an I-129 with the Department of Homeland Security. Once that's accepted is when your application is officially accepted underneath the cap. So that's, uh, that's what you're shooting for. That's kind of the process. And really, the only people that get through that process and actually get workers on the H-2B program are people that are assigned Group A. Could you hear that, Drew? Ching chime! That thing for my messaging went off in my ear, and I didn't know if it echoed in your ear. All right, back to it. So you got assigned Group A. Great. Now you can start uh, reaching out to workers, scheduling their embassy appointments, and booking them to start coming into the United States. Now, you want to do this as close to your actual start date as possible or beforehand because you do want to bring in all of your workers whenever you said you're going to. So if you need workers on April 1st, you say to the government, I need workers on April 1st, you want to actually process workers for them to be here on April 1st if you can. Uh, now, there is some limitation there that there's not unlimited embassy appointments or anything like that. And so sometimes they'll get in a little bit later, but you do want to get them as close to your start date as possible. So that's kind of the, the process in a nutshell for someone that is accepted under the cap, which is the rarity. That's the exception, not the rule. Now, there is uh, there is this question of, okay, well, what about I didn't get group A, so I know I'm not getting people underneath the cap. What can I expect? Well, if you're not getting people underneath the cap, what you can expect is to rely on what's called the, the cap increase. So Congress delegates authority to the Department of Homeland Security to increase the number of H-2B visas pretty much every year. Uh, they did it in 2020, but every year since I've been doing this before that, they have. And then the Department of Homeland Security will eventually issue a notice that says, hey, you can file for uh, returning workers which is a worker that has been issued an H-2B visa in one of the prior three calendar years, or you can seek workers from the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Honduras, or Guatemala. And those, the, the, really the only difference there is if you're going for the returning workers, they have to have had a visa in the prior three years. If you're going to the Northern Triangles, they don't. But the Northern Triangles, they really have their own complications as well. And that one, it's more expensive to get people here from there. The inbound transportation cost is significantly more. It's just farther. And so it costs more. Uh, the other thing is that the embassies there are not as familiar with H2s as the embassies in Mexico. The embassies in Mexico are extremely efficient at H2 appointments. And so they, they tend to get through them pretty quickly. Uh, normally, we see the cap increase occur sometime in late May or early June. I'm hoping it's a little bit earlier this year. They they seem to be 
pretty aggressive with it. Last week, I think it was, they announced that there's going to be more visas available this upcoming or this upcoming or this fiscal year than there has been historically, which is great. Uh, and a lot of them for the Northern Triangles. I, I, I think that's a that's a good thing. That those so <clears throat> hopefully we uh, end up with those sooner than later, so people can lean on them and 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 rely on those even whenever they're not accepted and group a from their assignment they get at the beginning of january now that one other frustrating thing to be aware of is the last year for example if you were assigned group g even if you had an april 1st start date the department of labor was not able to process those applications fast enough and so they, they really struggled uh i don't i don't know what caused that struggle if they had uh staffing shortages like everyone else or or whatever it was but either way they they didn't process those applications until uh may if you were in group g and so you were set way back uh just from dol processing times hopefully this year they streamlined that a little bit uh and i think that the other part from the department of labor's perspective is a lot more applications were filed last year than anticipated and i'm sure that they didn't have the the appropriate personnel to to work through the applications fast enough. It's just it's hard to work through that many applications. Uh, so I don't know. Hopefully this year they we don't have that same struggle. I, I think we'll we'll see and we'll see pretty quickly. Now let, let's talk a little bit about this hypothetical, which we didn't run into, but I think that some people might have. Let's say that I'm an H two B employer. And I don't get my workers in group A, so I'm definitely not getting in under the numerical cap. And then let's say that I don't get my workers underneath the returning workers or the Northern Triangle workers, and I try for all that. Uh, what can I still do? Well, at this point, you're pretty limited. You can try to find cap-exempt people, I suppose, meaning people that have already hit the cap that same fiscal year. Uh, or you can apply in October, uh, and basically you're just saying, Hey, I filed in April. I didn't get my workers. I filed and, uh, for the cap increase, still going to get my workers because the competitiveness of the cap, I still need them. Please let me have my, please let me have my workers. Of course, you're still limited to your actual seasonality. So if your seasonal justification for workers is April through December, and you end up not being able to get workers till October, you would only have them October, November, December. There is a benefit to that though, and that's that if you bring in workers in October, they're not subject to the cap again until the following October, and so they're considered cap exempt. So it makes it more reliable for you the following year, but it does uh, definitely put people in a tricky place. But that's enough about H2B. Okay, now we are on my favorite part of the podcast, which is not where... I'm actually acting as an immigration guy. It's where I am acting as a normal person with very good opinions about topics that matter a lot. So I don't know what these topics are. I think that's part of the fun. And I also don't know if I'll give my honest opinion or what I just think is funny. So we'll find out though. Okay. So today is a little more serious than Absolutely like chocolate chip cookies or pies. Hit me with it. So we'll start with a good one. We'll start with the federal budget deficit. The federal budget deficit. Yes. Uh, you want to know how strongly I feel about this? We do. The people do. The people really care. This is the thing. 
about the deficit is I don't understand why we don't actually have a political party that cares enough to reduce the deficit. But the funny thing is, is that we it's because we talk in such ambiguities and everyone's like, hey, uh, do you think this would be nice? I'm like, oh, yeah, I think that that would be nice. Yeah, no, the government should definitely provide that 100 percent. Absolutely. That's the government's responsibility to pay my cell phone bill. 100 percent. That makes total sense. Total sense. People actually think this. But then you say, hey, uh, OK, so you are OK. Wait, actually, maybe you're like, uh, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of that. But then you're like, you know, it's going to cost this much here. And people, are, people would be more like, oh, wait, no. So, no, it is kind of funny because we, we have a, a huge deficit problem, a massive deficit problem. And a, a deficit is sustainable just like any debt is so long as you continue to outpace it, uh, you continue to be able to satisfy those, those loans. But eventually it becomes unsustainable. And that is a huge issue that for some reason, neither one of our political parties actually tackle because they're so afraid of stripping people of quote unquote benefits or government policies that cost a lot of money. And I think the reality is that with that, you're sacrificing power. Whenever you're sacrificing money, you're sacrificing power. And we have no political parties willing to do that. So I think that the the federal deficit is a huge issue uh, that people aren't People aren't even talking about it as much as they used to. Like people used to talk about the deficit all the time, and then now I think everyone's just like, ah, screw it. All these people are going to spend all the money anyways. Let's just let them spend us into oblivion. It's so ridiculous. Have you seen those calculators that are online where it just like the numbers keep going up and up? Yes. And you're like, I think it's been 90 seconds, and there's a million more dollars. Yes. How awesome is that? They are able to make so much money so fast go away. It is amazing. If you ever want to see how fast money can disappear, give it to the government. They're, they are uniquely good at that. Uh, but yeah, I think that it's called the the National Debt Clock, I think is the name of the, the website. And it is it's a, scary, it's a scary website to get on. I, I don't recommend it. Yeah, if only we could spend that much money that fast. <laughs> Dude, that would, I don't even know if I could spend that much money that fast. I assure you, you could not. You are not a government employee. <laughs> Not anymore, Drew. You 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 probably I know. you probably could have a while ago, but now you graduated and sorry. Which is weird. When I was a government employee, we weren't allowed to spend any money. No, that's so because they were, I don't know where that's going. <laughs> you none of us know where it's going. That's part of the problem. It's so ridiculous. It is so ridiculous. Okay, next one here is we'll go cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency, as a general idea, as a concept, I love the idea of cryptocurrency. Like if something like Bitcoin could actually make it in the long term, I think that that would be so awesome because it decentralizes the power and it puts the power in the people that actually own it. And so it's controlled strictly by supply and demand. And so conceptually, I think that it's awesome. The likelihood that I think it succeeds in the long run is a different question, though, because if let's say that I'm the United States government and the U.S. dollar is the global currency. And at the second that I start seeing something else competing with me as a global currency, 
I am fully incentivized to regulate it out of existence. Now, if I'm the federal government and I recognize the convenience of a digital currency, what I'm doing is in the background, I'm creating a digital currency. And as I'm creating my digital currency and it's, it is being established the way I want it to just prior to releasing it, I start regulating the crap out of other cryptocurrencies so that they can't compete with my U.S. dollar-backed digital currency. So that's I think that it's great conceptually. I think the likelihood that our government would just release the power of controlling a monetary policy globally uh, without a fight is unrealistic. And I'm going to go ahead and put my money on the United States government over over Bitcoin, unfortunately. Although I do think that Bitcoin would be great because it decentralizes the power of monetary policy. Do you already own cryptocurrency or you're just not buying into it at all? I own no cryptocurrency because I feel just this strongly about this. But also, if I own cryptocurrency, you think I'm going to say it on the world's most popular podcast about immigration guys? No, absolutely not. If I'm a cryptocurrency-owning, gun-toting, whatever those guys are called. Tesla-owning, Tesla, soon to be. Oh, I, I don't own a Tesla, but if I did, I'd, soon to be. I'd pay for it in Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> he, he did that for like 30 minutes. He was like, you can buy your Tesla in uh, Bitcoin, or I don't remember if it was only Bitcoin, but he uh, he allowed people to buy them in cryptocurrency. And then I think he thought, well, that was really stupid. And then he started to accept real money again, which is also arguable. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I don't own cryptocurrency. But if I did, I sure want to be answering that question affirmatively on a podcast. Oh, okay. I didn't know. Why is that top secret info? It's decentralized money. You okay. think I want to just advertise it. You report to the man. I don't want to report it to the man if I did. You know, I can't have the man knowing about all this. Absolutely not. But I don't actually own any oh. cryptocurrency. But I do own a lot of guns. Okay, next one is the public school system. The, oh my God. The public school system. <laughs> and I don't even remember despising the public school system so much as a child. But now I absolutely hate the public school system. I, I, I tell us what you hate. The public school system. I just told you. I, I yeah, <laughs> like what about it? <laughs> I think that there's too much politics in our public school system, and that it is me, a means of pushing politics on innocent children. And I, I think that there is a time and a place for teaching people about politics or, or even trying to persuade people to be on your side politically. And I don't think that that's in the school system. Uh, but that is what we have in the school system. And it's dressed up in all sorts of different ways. And it is, uh, it's poison. And I definitely adamantly disagree with it and wish that the public school system was completely dismantled in favor of, of, maybe vouchers or, or some other way of people being able to send their kids to schools that actually actually reflect their own values, whatever those values may be. Because that is your, your, as a parent, one of the things that you're doing is you are trying to instill your values in your children. 
but you're not trying to allow other people to instill values in your children that contradict your own values. Uh, and so I don't care what those values are. I, what I care about is that you have control over your children being able to learn consistent with your values, regardless of what those values are. So I don't, I don't care what those are. I'm just saying that no matter what your values are, it's unlikely that your exact values are being replicated in the school system that you're being forced to send your kids to. So I think it's terrible. I think it's absolutely horrible. Glad we're getting your real opinions <laughs> here. <laughs> Nothing sugarcoated. Uh, no, I feel like I really sugarcoated that one. I didn't cuss at all. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have a fun one for the immigration guy. What are your thoughts on the unemployment rate in our country? What is the unemployment rate in our country? Well, now you're going to make me Google. Okay. Get you Google on. You're, what, you're definitely a top 10 Googler in the world, and this one's actually very easy. Okay. Do you want number of millions of people, or do you want percentage? Percentage. 3.5%. Uh, it's pretty low unemployment rate. I, I think that, that the employment rates can be a little bit deceptive, though, because we've also had a lot of people drop out of the workforce. Uh, now, th I think it's great to have really low unemployment. Obviously, I don't want a bunch of people looking for jobs and not being able to find jobs. But I, I, I do think that we're likely going to be seeing an increase in unemployment here in the next couple of years. It just seems like that that's likely the case. Uh, it just it feels like it feels a lot different than it than it did whenever a lot of the jobs were being gained. Why do you think it's going to go up? Um, well, high inflation doesn't help. Uh, recessions definitely don't help. And these are we're not in a recession. What's that's a great point. What is a recession? Uh, it's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, and then you get two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It's not two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. I don't know where you heard that crap. Uh, no. Okay, fine. Not this year. No, absolutely not. No, I think if we are... Okay, fine. Let's even say hypothetically we're not in a recession, which is arguable. Uh, actually, it really shouldn't be arguable at all, but it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, it, I, I think that we are definitely not in as good of an economy as we as we were whenever we were gaining a lot of jobs and everything was, was on fire. And there's a, a lot of inflationary pressure which is causing uh, interest rates to go up. Whenever you have interest rates go up, it kind of stops everything else. And this causes unemployment rates to, to increase. And so I think that, you know, right, right now what we have is uh, definitely in a, a, an employee and, and candidate-friendly environment. So I would, uh, I would, if I were someone seeking a job, I would certainly try to lock that in now and be as valuable as possible because uh, I think that we are headed for uh, much more employer-friendly environment, which which I, we've seen before. I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of the, the natural cycle of things, and it, it happens. But uh, I just yeah. So I I think that inflationary pressure is going to have a huge impact on unemployment rates, and particularly on. And it'd be, the other thing to consider is it may not even. No, I think it probably will be actually unemployment going up. But even if it wasn't, uh, I think one other thing that you're going to definitely see is wage rates not keeping up with inflation, which is an, another issue with inflation is that whenever wage rates can't keep up with it, then it makes the actual value 
that that employee receives from their employer less than it was the prior year, which is a great. Uh, and so you don't, you're definitely employers aren't looking for that. Employees aren't looking for that. And so it's not a good thing, but uh, I think it is just, it's a, it's a constant cycle. Thank you all for listening to the immigration guy podcast. We really appreciate it. You can find us on our website, go to www.farmerlawpc.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search at Kyle Farmer FLPC. You can find our law firm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. All you have to do is search for at Farmer Law PC. Go ahead and subscribe to download all the episodes of our podcast. You can download them and listen to them whenever and wherever you want. Uh, we'll be releasing new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, which is apparently a real thing, Amazon Music, Google, and wherever else you get your podcast. This is not legal advice, so any information that you get from this podcast should not be taken as such. If you are looking for legal advice, you should consult with a competent attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Uh, if you want to schedule a consultation, just go ahead and use the link in the description of this episode. Thank you.